Good morning. A lot of energy in here, isn't there? So it's good to be amongst the Lord's people, knowing that where two or three are gathered together in His name, He's here in our midst. And so we're not just here for ourselves, but to be with Him, to meet with Him, to worship Him, and to, to hear from Him. And I pray that the Lord will indeed do that today and speak to us through His Word as we open it together. Just a few quick announcements. Number one, if, if you are participating in the, uh, the Bible book challenge, the Emmaus Correspondence Course, we're going through the book of Psalms with other assemblies like ours all around the country, and um, it's part two of three parts are now coming to an end, right? If you've got your sheets to turn in, there's a manila folder hanging on the, uh, or an envelope on the back bulletin board. Um, if you forgot it today, it'll still be there tonight. Um, still be there Wednesday night, but they have to be mailed out this week. So please make sure they come in so we can get that out uh, without stress. And um, besides that, I just want to say another word about the uh, Ezekiel Project School of Evangelism. Um, <clears throat> please don't be impressed about Malcolm saying that I was some valedictorian of the class last year. Um, <clears throat> they really, it's intense. There's a lot of information, but it's the fundamentals, right? And um, they just have a heart to see the lost come to know the Lord. In order to do that, there's a certain amount of information we need to be able to communicate. And so uh, they really just are trying to make it as practical as possible to learn how to talk to others. And um, using some creative methods to help, uh, learning some object lessons. Yes, how to use the paintboard. But the neat thing about that is you don't need to have some fancy big paintboard. I mean, we practice it on paper with a, mar with a magic marker, you know. So... Um, Talking, down with, talking with anyone, you can have a, a, a graphic illustration to share with someone to help them understand the concepts we're talking about. And um, we're not saying if, if you come to the evangelism class, you have to go out onto the, paint, onto the boardwalk and get up in front of everybody and do that outdoor preaching. Hey, you know, maybe that's for some of us down the road, right? But, but we're not trying to get the cart before the horse, right? The first thing is, if you would like to be better equipped to share the gospel with those that you know and love so that they don't have a Christless eternity waiting for them. Uh, it's a great opportunity. Um, Chris Schroeder, um, he is just excited about sharing the gospel. And for someone like me, who I don't feel that I have a natural gift for it, I get, I, even still, you know, the, here I am trying to encourage these other brothers to get up and do the paint board. I get up there sometimes and I'm scared to turn around. I'm like, Lord, help me. Let me do one more outline. And you know, <laughs> it, it, there's just something about my own weakness that I need the Lord's help in order to do it. And um, the neat thing is, though, whatever he calls us to, no matter how scared we are, when we... Just offer our fear to him and say, Lord, help. He's right there. And that's the, that probably the most exciting thing to me about doing these things is, is learning to see God at work in me and hopefully through me. And uh, if you don't know that joy for yourself, I'd just encourage you to consider what the Lord is leading you to be a part of, how he's wanting to use the gift that he's given you. And it may not be a public thing. Like we said earlier, Andrew, look, look for him in the Gospels. He hears about someone who's got some interest. Well, here, let me come introduce you to Jesus. And just in the quietness of his own personal way, he introduced lost souls to Jesus. And uh, that's partly why the Lord's left us here, right? And uh, so it's a great opportunity. Can't beat the cost. Uh, it's free right here in our, under our noses, right? So that is correct, right? Free? At Boulevard 
at Boulevard Chapel. Yeah, you go somewhere else, and uh, <clears throat> that's another story, perhaps. But all right. If you'll turn with me this morning to Exodus chapter 1, we're going to start back into uh, the, the course that we started last year, right? We started in Genesis 1-1. We're, we're kind of going through the Old Testament history of um, the Lord's dealing with mankind, right? Genesis, we started with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created all of this world and all this universe in six days and he began to work in man's history. Man fell when he sinned. And now God is in the process of redeeming lost souls, bringing them back into a restored relationship with himself. And in the process, we learned in chapter 12 that God not only had a, a plan for all the world, but he called out one man, Abraham, and said, through you and your descendants, I will make you a blessing. And through you, all the world will be blessed. And through his seed, his descendant in particular, not only all of his descendants as a whole, but there would be one of his sons who would come down the line, so to speak, through whom all the world would be blessed. And of course, today, as we look back in history, as the scriptures have been fulfilled, we know that to be Jesus Christ. He has come. He was a child of Abraham, and he was able to pay the penalty for our sin once and for all, so we can have forgiveness of sin and in eternal life through him. But we've gotten kind of ahead of ourselves, right? So uh, um, a few generations after Abraham, Joseph, one of 12 sons of Jacob, was sold into slavery in Egypt. But God turned things around and used him to be uh, the very means by which his own family would be saved from a famine. Not only his own family, but the, all the surrounding nations of the world. And so they all came and descended upon Egypt, and we're there for 400 years. And that's where we basically pick up the story in Exodus chapter 1. And uh, I know we don't have an abundance of time this morning, but in order for us to be ready for the weeks that are coming, we want to uh, uh, get a good handle on the first two chapters today. And I know that's a lot of uh, scripture to cover, but it's largely history. And so we're going to read starting in Exodus 1.1 through the end of chapter 2. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, and all those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more than mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land." Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. 
All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra, and the name of the other, Pua. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stools, if it's a son, then you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Chapter 2. And a man of the house of Levi went and took his wife, a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him and daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sisters said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a, ma a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. Now it came to pass in those days, when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Fa the, their water, the, excuse me. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Reuel, their father, he said, How is it that you've come so soon today? And they said, 
An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, where is he? Why is it that you've left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses, and she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a, for in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Shall we pray? Oh, God, our Father, we again come to your word with somber hearts. Lord, what's revealed in this text, as well as in all your word, certainly is truth. We rejoice in what we learn about you in the pages of your word. We shudder to see what we learn about the likes of ourselves, the depths of the depravity that which we can come to when we turn away from you. But Father, we rejoice in your grace. And Lord, as we spend our time this morning looking at not only the, the desperate situation of your people in Israel so long ago, but the desperate affair, affairs of our own heart today, but also, Lord, of the deliverance that you were planning as you raised up a deliverer, not only Moses in that day, but your son for our day as well. And we thank you for that great salvation that you've offered through him. We pray, our Father, that if there's anyone here who doesn't understand all that, that you would give them understanding today, that you would open the eyes of their heart, that you would remove the scales of the blindness of the God of this world who would seek to keep them from seeing the glory that's revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ and turn to him so that they might be saved. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, we pray that you would encourage us to have a heart for the lost, even as you have a heart for the lost. And that as Moses was willing to make a difficult choice to be your servant for that very need, we pray, Lord, that you would move in our hearts to make that hard choice as well. We ask these things for your honor and glory. In the name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, I, <clears throat> I kind of have two separate thoughts from the two chapters, but they do go together. Number one is about the bondage of Egypt. Chapter 2, the choice of Moses. And by that I mean it's a play on words. God's choice of Moses as the deliverer and his providential, sovereign hand at preserving him for that purpose, but also the choice that Moses had to make in order to answer that call. I don't know how we're going to do all that, <clears throat> but if you'll join with me as we go back to chapter 1. It says that the children of Israel came to Egypt. Now they came there in great victory, they were being saved by, through their brother Joseph, who had made a provision in their time of famine. But God had made a promise, and in these first seven verses, what we see is the fulfillment of three out of four promises that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. He told him, first of all, you're going to have so many descendants that they'll be like the stars of the sky, uncountable. And at this very time, Abraham had no children. And so he said, how can this be? But he believed God. And at that time, it says, God reckoned the faith in his heart 
to be righteousness. He wasn't perfect and righteous before God, but he believed the promise of God. And God counted his faith as righteousness. It's the same way you and I are saved, even though we're sinners today, through faith. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, and not of works that no one can boast. That's the message of the gospel. We can be saved today by faith. And, and so he told him at that time, he said, listen, I know you don't have children now, but they will come. And, but they're not going to stay in this land. I'm promising to give this land to your descendants. But for 400 years, they will go to be strangers in another land and they will serve those people there. But in due time, I will bring them out with great riches and bring them back to this land where they will serve me. And what do we see in these verses? But we see that, yes, they came down with their father, Jacob, But that generation died, and the 400 years did pass. But we see in verse 7 that the children of Israel were fruitful and increased and multiplied, fulfilling the word of God. We see in this passage to come that, yes, they were made servants there to those people. But now the time was drawing near where we would see that last part, where God would help bring them out. The affliction that they were under, that God had said that they would be under for four generations, was on the edge of being uh, uh, set aside. They were about to be delivered. But it wasn't so easy, as we will see. After all these years, verse 8 tells us that a new king arose over Egypt. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. What a loaded statement. As I think of the ramifications of this, there arose a new king. That tells me he wasn't king before. There arose a new king. Someone had stepped aside so that he could become the king. He was indeed king. He had power and authority over this dominion. And he was over Egypt. Those in his dominion were under his rule. What kind of man was he? Well, it says he didn't know Joseph. He didn't know the very one that he owed his own life to. He didn't know the one who preserved his people and provided them their very sustenance. And so, he was a very evil man, a cruel master to those who were in his care. And it says that he came and he called his people aside and he said, verse 10, let us deal shrewdly with this people. He says, lest they multiply and and they rise up as enemies against us and so they'll leave us. He was afraid that they in their uh, 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 opposition would escape from his rule. You know, it's, a, it's an incredible picture of all the world, even today. Egypt, you know, it's interesting. In Exodus chapter 20, as God was about to give them the Ten Commandments, speaking of Egypt, Here's what it says in Exodus 21 and 2. God spoke all these words, and he's speaking to Moses. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Egypt was known for a lot of things. It was known for its, uh, its plenty, its prosperity, the richness of the land as it was irrigated from the Nile River, the pleasures of Egypt it's spoken of in Hebrews. Of course, it says it's the pleasures of sin that Moses would turn away from. There were pleasures there, but those pleasures faded away in the minds of the Israelites because their portion was one of bondage. 
God said it was the house of bondage in Egypt. You know, that's where we as humans find ourselves today. It says that this man rose up who didn't know Joseph, the king of Egypt. And you know, the king and ruler of this world today, the God of this world, is Satan. The dragon, the serpent of old, the scriptures call him. And he is in absolute opposition to God Almighty. And he has taken over. He has arisen to be the new king here on earth. And he's trying desperately to hang on to that. And just as the king in Egypt was afraid of those people, you know, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan's afraid of you too. He doesn't want you to escape his dominion in your life. And he knows that the one to whom you belong is greater than him. And so he's on a rampage. And so just as it says this king said, I want to deal shrewdly with these people and afflict them. That's what Satan's doing today. He's seeking to afflict as many as he can with the bondage of sin, slavery to sin. That's the way the Bible describes it. If we turn to the New Testament and look in places like Romans 5.12, it says, as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin and death are our portion because of sin. They were in Egypt because of their ancestor, their forefather Jacob. We find ourselves there in this world because of our forefather Adam, who sinned against God. And we are entering into that inheritance. We're reaping what he sowed and its bondage to sin. Romans chapter 6 tells us that to whatever you commit yourselves to, the members of your body, you become a slave to that. If it's sin, then you're a slave to sin. If it's to righteousness, you're a slave to righteousness. The bondage of sin. Even as a Christian, Paul would cry out, right, in Romans chapter 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? Sin, still working in his members. The law of sin was still present with him. And we find ourselves afflicted. It says it was bitter and hard bondage, this service under that king. And that's all this world has to offer, you know. I don't care what pleasures you're trying to seek in this world, like the people tried to seek it in, in Egypt, but you're going to find in the end it's bitter, hard bondage. You know, the things that we find ourselves slaves to, they change from time to time, don't they? As kids, it could be simple things like lying, just being selfish, not thinking of others, and they progress. I can't remember exactly where that poem comes from, right? They say that sin will take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you intended to be there, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. And it's true. Just like Jonah found trying to run away from God, it cost him dearly. He had to pay the price. We pay the price for the sin that we commit, whatever it may be. And no matter how far we go into that slavery, there's no way of escape. We read about it all the time of those who just give up, some even taking their own lives. And the tragedy that is, some people think that they've escaped and, oh, at least they're at peace. But if they don't know the Lord Jesus, it's worse for them because now they face eternity without him. But because of the love of God, that doesn't have to be our portion. It doesn't have to be yours today. If you know the Lord is your Savior, he wants to save us from this bondage. And so... <clears throat> um, He's going to provide a deliverer. You know, 
the king felt that that bondage was not enough. It says that he actually went to destroy the, 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 the generation that was going to come up from those Hebrews. And, and so he pulled these midwives aside and, and he told them, as we read, you know, as soon as a son is born, you just cast him into the river. If it's a girl, you can let her live. But all the, all the male children, they need to be, they need to be killed. And uh, I love this in verse 17. It says, but the midwives feared God. The midwives feared God. Now, I can't quite determine if these were Egyptian midwives. They must have been. I can't imagine the Hebrew women would have been any more willing to, uh, to do this. But he thought at least these Egyptian midwives might comply, but they feared God. Could it be that having the exposure to the people of God had an impression on them? They got to know the God that the Hebrews feared, and they too turned to him in their hearts. But even though they knew that they were accountable to the king, it says the king did call them, verse 18. He called for them and said, why have you done this? You've disobeyed my direct command. But they feared God more than they feared the king. And oh, how I wish I had more of that same fear. The disciples in in the early chapters of Acts were commanded, do not preach in the name of Jesus Christ. But they said, should we obey you or obey God? There's two opposing commands. The higher authority is God, not the king. And so when the, the king's command is in direct opposition to God's command, he says, we must obey God. These women could have lost their lives. Now, I don't know. Some have said, you know, that they may be told a lie. Or perhaps it was true that these women stopped calling for them. Maybe they even told the women, don't call for us until after, you know, don't let us know. Just have the babies on your own. We'll, we'll check in later. I don't know. But, but they, they told them, the babies are born before we get there. But they wouldn't do what the king had commanded them because they feared God. And, and, and as a result, they stood before the king unwilling to comply. And verse 20, therefore, God dealt well with those midwives. Brothers and sisters, we live in a day in a, in a time of history where we see the tides of the culture coming in further and further, pressing against us, pushing us trying to push us away from obedience to God. And we need to be ready to take our stand. We need to be like Daniel who purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. Somehow, to say, I've decided to follow Jesus. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. No turning back. I don't know what that'll mean. I don't know if they knew what it would mean. But it says, God dealt well with them. And even if we lay down our lives here, it is well with our soul if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, because in heaven, we will be rewarded for our faithfulness. And we have that hope if we know the Lord is our Savior. But it says, as a result, because they feared God, he provided households for them. He's faithful. Those who honor me, I will honor, he said. So Pharaoh then, when he realized he wasn't getting anywhere with the midwives, he's commanded all his people. You see a male child? Cast him in the river. So the stakes were high. It was advancing. It was getting more and more intense. And as we read at the end of chapter 2, the people began to call out to God. And he was listening. 
That was the bondage of Egypt. But what was God doing? There was a man of the house of Levi, a Jewish man. We don't even know his name at this point, but he takes a wife. And they feared God too, and they had a child. Now they already had other children. We learn of Miriam and of Aaron in, in later chapters. But for now, it says that they had this child, and it was Moses. And they saw the specialness of this child. And I know that every parent feels that way about their child. I don't know what they saw in this child any different than any other. But at this point, they were moved. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us by faith to hide him from Pharaoh's people. But there came a time where it says they could no longer hide him. That it says that she took an ark. She made this little basket we sometimes say, of bulrushes, and they put the pitch on it so that it was waterproof, and they put little Moses into it, and they laid him in that ark in the reeds by the river. I find this a very ironic statement. I forget whether you'd call it poetic justice or not, but um, it's interesting. The command was, put the babies in the water. They did. They actually obeyed the command. But he was safe in the ark, right? And uh, isn't that a picture of the ark of Noah too, right? God said that he would destroy all flesh with this flood. And they were doomed because of this coming flood of judgment from God. But Noah went through the flood. He went through the judgment, but there was a place of safety. The ark bore the brunt of that, penalty, that, that, that punishment from God. And so all those in the ark were safe. And isn't that a great picture of our salvation here too, where the, the, the judgment, and this is interesting because Moses becomes in, the, in, in this narrative both a picture of Christ and a picture of you and I, right? Him going into that Nile River in the ark is a picture of any human who is under the penalty of death and the judgment of God who finds the place of safety in God's provided ark. Like Noah went into God's provision of the ark and was safe in, this, in the flood. And now we find this ark becomes a place of safety for Moses as he was placed in the very river meant to be his death, but found safety. <clears throat> and the ark, a picture of our, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who went into death to be the one to provide our salvation. But overall, what we're going to see is that he does become a picture of Christ. And one of the first ways is he was born under the sentence of death. Right? And Herod tried to kill Jesus the same way as Pharaoh tried to kill the babies like Moses. We're going to see later how he was rejected by his, his fellow Hebrews. Moses and Jesus were both rejected by the ones that God was raising them up to save. And then um, later he would rise up to be the Savior himself. Anyways, well, Jesus would, not Moses. But Moses pictures that for us in this passage. So <clears throat> it says that she put the ark in the water and, and the, the, the daughter of Pharaoh comes along and, and, and when she sees this little baby and she brings him out, it says she had compassion on him and she wanted to help him. And, and, and so... This little girl, I don't know whether that was her mother's instructions or whether she just, she just thought of it on the spot. She, she offers to find a woman who can nurse this child. And oh, how much of a blessing it must have been for, for um, Jochebed to be able to take care of her own child, even getting paid for it. 
by, the, by, by Pharaoh's daughter. And so he escapes, he's alive, and now he's, he's, he, he's beginning to grow. It tells us that <clears throat> he did grow, and, and at some point, at verse 10, it says, she, his mother, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And that's when he got the name Moses. She said, because I drew him out of the water. Drawn out is what Moses literally means, right? And so he, the way he was drawn out of the river, she said, I want his name to be Moses. And um, he gets an education, excellent education, the best of his day in Egypt. And he begins to grow. But you know, to think, mothers, about the precious time you have with your children. Fathers, we do too, but... For the most part, it's the moms who spend the most time investing into our children. The impact of that nurturing. To think of the few short years that Jochebed had with Moses, but to be able to teach him his true heritage as a child of God. To teach him to know and to trust the, the God of heaven, the God of the Bible. So that even though he would go into Pharaoh's home, that when he became of age, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us, <clears throat> that by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He had all the pleasures of Egypt at his disposal but he was willing to deny those things, to refuse them, to choose to identify with his people, even with the suffering that that would mean. That, does, that doesn't just happen by chance. It happens because he had that early education that pointed him towards God. It happened because he did become a child of God himself. He, he, he himself had... A, you know, I think of the, the parable of the soils in the New Testament where it says that the ones who, yeah, they received the word with joy at the beginning but fell away when the difficulties came because there was no root in them. The root of faith had never, the seed of faith had never taken root in their hearts. And so the reality in their own heart was not there. Our children are not going to have a relationship with the Lord because we do but because they themselves are going to make that choice to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's our privilege to introduce them to him as early as we can, as often as we can, while we raise them, while we have that opportunity. And this time was there for Jochebed and for Amram. And, and the time came when they turned him over to Pharaoh's daughter and he, he finished his education there in the courts. But now, when the time came when he was grown, we learn in, I think it's Acts chapter uh, 7, where it says that he was 40 years old. And he went out to see his brethren and, and to behold their burdens. And he saw this one Egyptian beating the Hebrew. And you know, he, he had a heart for his people. And it says he looked this way and that, and, and he, saw, he didn't see anybody. And so he, he struck that Egyptian and he killed him. And it says in, in, in the New Testament that he supposed that they understood that he wanted to rescue them. But they didn't understand. His heart was with them. His heart was in accordance with the purpose of God for him and for his people. And yet, why didn't it work? 
I would say besides just simply saying it wasn't God's time, is that he didn't choose God's way. The way of Egypt was the way of death. God's way is not that way. And so he tried to take things in his own hands and he struck that Egyptian. He killed him. And it's often been said that the end does not justify the means. If we're going to do God's work, we've got to do it God's way. And so sometimes that means waiting. God may have put something in your heart or in the mind of something he wants to, to, to see happen in our lives down the road, and it's our responsibility to plan for it, to work towards it, to, to develop that gift within us, to, to develop whatever skills are necessary, to, to depend on him and to, to follow his leading and not just run on in advance. But it's so hard to wait, isn't it? Psalm 105 says that until God's word came to pass, that word tested Joseph. He gave him that vision and that dream some 15, 17 years earlier, and it never came to pass. In fact, the harder he, wanted, he worked to try to please God and to, and to work towards that end, things seemed to get worse. But finally, God's time came. And he was doing things God's way and he was ready. And here we see Moses, man, he reached out and he tried to do it his way. And it was unsuccessful. But in his heart, I think he wanted to do the right thing. Because what we read in Hebrews again is it says, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. I say, you know, the, 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 the scriptures tell us that he fled from Egypt. That wants to tell my mind he was afraid. And so he ran. But see, he refused. He forsook Egypt. And so when he saw that his plans didn't work, he had no course but to leave. But it says, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. His mistake turned his eyes towards God, and he was able to endure. Even the 40 years of being on the backside of the desert, now becoming a, a shepherd. But you know, that was the training he needed. The heart of that one who was brought up in Egypt and the ways of Egypt had become his ways was learning God's ways. He finds himself now on the run and he goes down to Midian and he sits down by the well and it doesn't take, but <laughs> it doesn't say exactly how long, but there he is at this well and suddenly these daughters of, of the priest of Midian come out. The interesting thing is there that the descendants there who were in Midian were the descent, also descendants of Abraham by his later wife, Keturah. And so this priest was one of these descendants of Abraham from a different wife. And it says that his daughters came to draw water. And here the shepherds come and they're bullying these girls. And they're just going to run them off and take the water that they had drawn for their own sheep and, and leave them to do it themselves after they were done. But it says Moses stood up and helped them. He was willing to be a helpful person to see the need of those around him and seek to help. And this was the beginning of a new era for him. He, they brought him home finally to his father, who it would become his father-in-law. He was welcomed into their presence. He dwelt amongst them. He helped tend his father-in-law's sheep and even received a wife, had children there, as he was a stranger in this foreign land. Again, I told you he would be a picture of our Lord Jesus. After he was rejected by his own people and he turned 
to another nation. He found, <clears throat> he found a wife there. They were new offspring to belong to his family from that place during the time of his rejection. And that happened to our Lord Jesus, didn't it? And uh, we've entered into that blessing today. But I would say this. I know our time is rapidly, I was going to say fleeing, but it's pretty much gone. What we can learn about Moses is that God does have a plan. He is sovereign. That means he has the right to choose what he wants to do. He has the power and the authority to do it. And he's working towards that end. And he chose Moses to be this instrument of his who was going to raise up to deliver his people. And so he protected him. And he worked and he organized the events of his life to lead him in that direction. And you know, my brothers and sisters, whatever God's plan is for you, the Bible says this, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And he's going to lead us in that direction. But man, Moses had some choices to make. Yes, he was the choice of God for that mission. But he, there was a price tag to following the Lord. And he chose rather to suffer with the people of Israel, to follow the, the, and be obedient to the leading of God in his life. I, I really like the way it's worded again in Hebrews 11. I know I've alluded to it several times, but listen to this. It says, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Isn't that great? All the treasures that were before him in Egypt, it says, he considered the reproach of Christ a greater rich than that, a greater treasure than that. Because he was looking to a reward that was not in this lifetime, but in the lifetime to come, the eternal reward. And the only way that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, are going to be able to follow his example is we're going to have to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. And there may be things in this life that God is calling us to lay aside that are not necessarily sinful. It would not have been sinful for Moses to inherit those things that were falling to him by nature in this life. But to accomplish God's work for him, he refused those treasures. And he looked to a reward in eternity. You know, in Pilgrim's Progress, there's a story in the interpreter's house. The pilgrim is brought to the place where he sees many different visions of, of things that are said to be helpful to him along the way, the way of his life in following the Lord Jesus Christ. And he saw in, at one point these two children, and, and they were both sitting there. And one of them was just sitting there quietly with a little bit of a sad look on his face, while the other one was just in ecstasy and delight, devouring th these precious things that were before him. And he looked at the man and said, what does this mean? And he said, the name of the one is patience. And the name of the other is passion. And they've both been told that they can either have the riches of these little pleasures now, but they must come to an end and their time will be done and they'll have them no more. Or they can wait till a future time when the one who promised them would come and bring them 
treasures that would never come to an end, pleasures that would last forevermore. And patience was willing to wait. And so he denied himself the pleasures of those things that were placed before him right now. But passion, he couldn't wait. He saw what he saw with his eyes and said, I must have them now. And he just dove in. But as time went by, his time came to an end. And all those things that were pleasures to him just fell to dust. And he was left with nothing. And now the inheritance of patience would come. And it would have no end. We have the same choice to make that patience and passion had. We have the same choice to make that Moses had. And really we have the same choice to make that Jesus had who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, but is now sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He was willing not to consider the riches and the glories of heaven as something to be grasped after, but rather he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And we're told in 1 Peter chapter 2. For to this you are called. Because Christ left us an example. And we're called now to follow in his steps. And what was that example? When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he was, when he was threatened, he didn't threaten in return. When he was mocked and scorned and beaten and even put on the tree. He simply committed himself to him who judges righteously and his heavenly father carried him along, faithful to the very end. Yes, he died, but he rose again and he's in glory today. And you know, there's a lot that's waiting for us who know the Lord is our savior. There's a great reward, but let's not forget that this is a temporary scene and the pleasures of the things around us are gonna pass away. So let's not put down our roots here. We're just passing through. We're a foreigner in a strange land. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, your citizenship is in heaven, not here. And so let's look to him. Let's look to that reward and follow Moses' example. He accomplished the Lord's mission for his life by making that choice. Jesus, our ultimate example, has done that. And it says we're called to follow in his footsteps. So Lord, we just want to come before you today and ask for your mercy and grace to help in our time of need. For I know I sense my own weakness, my own frailty, my own difficulty in following this beautiful example of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He denied himself everything to come here to become one of us. He came to his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And Father, we rejoice today that this offer still stands today. And I just ask, Lord, that if there's anyone here who does not know you as their Savior, perhaps they've been caught up in this slavery to sin, pursuing the, the treasures of this world. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to see that it's passing. And pursuing those passions today are not going to get them what they really want. It's going to be empty. But Lord, before it's too late, I pray that you'd help them to turn to Jesus Christ and say, I need him. He's my Savior. He died for me and that they would receive his forgiveness today by trusting in him. And Lord, for those of us who know you as our Savior, I just pray that you would help us 
as you've chosen us out of this world. You've called us to yourself. You've asked us to follow the example of Christ. Will you help us? Help us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Not that we would be seen as some great thing. Not that we might just uh, make a name for ourselves, but rather that the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, would be honored and glorified, not only now, but for all eternity. We ask it in his precious name.